We are Lance and Carrie Borden. We serve with the International Mission Board in Vienna, Austria. Welcome, friends, and thanks for tuning in to Mission Chats. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors at First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque. On this episode of this limited series podcast, I'm joined by Lance and Carrie Borden, International Mission Board missionaries to Vienna, Austria. And among other things, we'll be talking about reaching post-Christian cultures with the hope and gospel of Jesus Christ. Wonderful. Lance and Carrie, thank you so much for making time to sit down and, and have a conversation about your, the work that you're doing and, and especially uh, uh, what you're learning from the Lord uh, as you do it and how what you're learning can be helpful to us as believers here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and, and whoever else may end up listening to this uh, across the world. Uh, it's really, I, I've really enjoyed getting to know the both of you over the last uh, several months now, I guess, and we've had some great conversations, and I'm sure that we could spend a lot of time talking even further today. Uh, but to help to get our listeners to, to know you a little bit better, I'd love to hear from each of you uh, how you became a Christian. When did you believe the gospel? When did you come to trust Christ? And then uh, maybe this will be a part of your story that you tell together, I, I suppose. Uh, how did you end up where you are now, serving with the International Mission Board in Vienna? Well, I'll start. Um, <clears throat> I basically grew up in a Christian home, so I was at church even in the womb. <laughs> um, I heard the gospel every time I was at church. It was a, a really missions-minded, Bible-preaching church, um, but I was a middle child and pretty stubborn and rebellious. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so I was there because I had to be, um, I enjoyed all the social activity, but I wasn't really thinking much about the spiritual aspects. Um, and I caused my parents a lot of grief. Anyway, uh, around ninth grade, um, back when they still had revival weeks at churches, I, um, I the speaker, basically was saying, um, you know, being on the fence is not okay. Uh, either decide to walk with the Lord and, and believe and, and be committed um, or don't, but don't pretend. So I just, the Holy Spirit really convicted me. So I made a decision that night um, and my whole life changed. Everything changed. Um, I suddenly had better grades. I suddenly had respect for my parents and I was, and I desired to, um, submit to authority, gods and other authority. Um, yeah. And it, it changed my life. So. Yeah. There was not a whole lot of difference for, for me. I also was raised in a family that was very faithful to follow Jesus, took me to church. My earliest memories are vacation Bible school and learn actually learning about missions and missionaries. Um, when I was a first and second grader, we lived in Iran and we were there part of an international church where there were a couple of missionary families who were kind of heroes to me, even to this day. Um, and shortly after we returned uh, to the U.S., um, I think actually coming to faith, I think was for me kind of a, I wouldn't say a dramatic shift as much as it was just a, a, a slow process or a gradual process. But I know that when I was nine, uh, my grandma was visiting and she came and and we just talked and she uh asked me if I wanted to pray and ask Jesus to come in my heart. Um, and uh, so there in my bedroom one evening, uh, I did that. That was kind of the point where I could say absolutely by that point in time, I was a a, a believer and a follower of Jesus. Um, yeah, so that was when I was nine. God um, called carrying me both to missions while we were teenagers. Um, she grew up in Denver. I grew up in Amarillo. Uh, and um, we think it was very close to the same maybe the same week or within a couple of weeks of each other uh, that we both went forward in our church during an invitation time and, and committed our lives to, to missions. But we met in Fort Worth where, where I was studying and uh, Carrie had found a job. We met in church there, got to know one another, got married. Uh, a lot, even a part of that, that, that process was uh, as we got to know one another, we discovered that God had put it on our hearts to go to the nations and, um, so that was a, also a part of our journey. And from there, then step by step, uh, we we spent, uh, I went to seminary. We spent a couple of years in Spain as journeymen, uh, where our daughter was born. Then we went back to America and um, spent a year doing what we call a turnaround to come back career. 
we came to Germany for a year for language school where our son was born. And then we moved to Vienna in uh, uh, in January of 1998. And we've been there ever since. I, I wonder, as you think back, uh, particularly on on your call to serve the Lord in uh, in missions or, or overseas, going to the nations, wherever that might be, were there particular passages of Scripture that weighed especially heavily on your heart or in your mind in that process? Where was God taking you in His Word, even as He was calling you out to the nations? I would say it was just a general passion to do whatever God, like just learning what obedience looks like. When um, when you're reading the Word daily, um, He's inspiring you to, to work on your character and and, and to love what he loves, which are lost people. Um, and then, of course, my love for international missions and mission um, involvement actually had to do with going on trips, um, like choir tours, VBS things, where we would go to another place. Um, and it was usually a place that was not, I mean, even though it was within America, it was unfamiliar to me. And um, the situation of the people we were working with would would be different than mine. And so it was still crossing cultural um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. things. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's... I would say it was a combination of, of just being in the Word daily and learning to love what God loves and then the experiences that we had. Yes, the... yeah, mm-hmm. similar for you? Um, yeah, I would say so. I think that, uh, you know, I would say... <laughs> Missions is a, I would say, a part of the DNA of my life. My experience uh, was constant in my church, and so the Great Commission and Matthew would be certainly a big part of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think also uh, critical in that is that really, if you read a, a full page of the Bible, any page, you're yeah. probably going to come across something about the gospel for all the nations and for all the world, oh, and. Yeah. And of course, living overseas and and seeing a different culture and, and language and religion uh, was uh, had a strong uh, impact on me. Uh, one thing that I would say there was a very specific verse uh, about uh, coming to Austria uh, mm. for us. We were praying about where God wanted us to go. We knew He wanted us to go. We we you know where and um and. Uh, Austria was like a dream vacation lo- location, you know, and then it's like, well, it seems to be on my heart and uh, that's too good to be true. You know, you're supposed to be called to that country that, that you say you never want to go to. Right, right. <laughs> that's how a lot of people tell the story. And uh, But uh, I was reading in Exodus uh, where uh, the, the, the people of Israel are standing in front of the Red Sea and Moses is praying and God says, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Mm, mm. and and that was just kind of the lightning strike of you know quit doubting all this stuff just go i've already told you what to do yeah yeah that's awesome that's awesome well you guys live in a a, a beautiful part of the world uh that that has a a, a lot of history a, a lot of uh, uh culture and um mm. uh you know I, I think living in america we don't don't quite get uh, a sense for the the depth of time, if that makes sense. We don't have buildings that are hundreds of years old necessarily uh, here <clears> in the United States, but but you all do uh, there in Vienna and a long history even of uh, kind of, of of the church being uh, the church presence there in Vienna as well. So how would you describe for our listeners, how would you describe the culture of Vienna? By that I mean what sort of historical events, what figures, what, uh, what people, uh, eras of time have really shaped who the Viennese are and, and what they believe? Well, yeah, there have there've been thousands of pages of books written about that. Uh, so I'll try to summarize it. Um, but uh, just uh, nut- nutshell yeah. that for us real quick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Vienna has a long history of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which has been there for uh over a thousand years, I think. Uh, so that's a significant factor that has kind of gone as a as a foundational aspect of of the culture. There, but I would also say there's some syncretism there. There's a combination with pagan superstitions that were there before the Catholic Church came, and so that's all kind of woven together into the the DNA of the culture. Uh, really significant 
in in Vienna in Austria as a whole is uh, the Reformation and then the Counter Reformation. The the Reformation was uh, had a strong movement. Uh, a great awakening happened in Austria, uh, but it was crushed by the Counter Reformation, which was uh, driven by the Catholic Church, and so uh, the ruling family of of Austria. Uh, really wanted to uh, eradicate any sort of non-Catholic faith. And so for hundreds or dozens of years, uh, the Counter-Reformation uh, led to lots of people leaving Austria, but also just hundreds of martyrs uh, being killed and tortured, publicly tortured in the city streets of Vienna, burned at the stake, thrown in the river. Uh our kindergarten that we have, the word kindergarten, uh, comes from those times where uh, the the adult people were being killed and their children were alive. And so they had all these orphans. Mm. So they kept a few women alive and chained them uh, to a millstone in a house wow. where they would care for, for children uh, until the children became uh, uh, adults. And uh, interestingly enough, some of those children, when they became adults, did not recant the faith of their parents, but uh, stepped from being a child to I'm not going to recant my parents. I believe in Jesus to being killed immediately uh, as a martyr. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, so there's some really powerful and and really dark side of uh, of the Austrian history there in the the 1500s, um, and so that's there. Uh, Austria, Vienna in particular, has a very uh, kind of a, a strange fashion fascination with death it's a dark city kind of psychological carry always jokes about how you know freud had he, he came from vienna uh mm -hmm. there's a lot of work to do there uh, a lot of weird stuff going on in the minds of people and so he had plenty of interesting stuff although he was kind of uh in our understanding pretty wacky himself yeah. there's this darkness that's there and of course uh uh the viennese people were fairly enthusiastic about uh, about the Anschluss, about joining Germany uh, with Hitler uh, for the the Nazi Germany, and so uh, that also is there. So there's a lot of scars, I would say, on the soul of of your Viennese people. Yeah, that's really interesting to describe it that way. Uh, that that you live in a scarred culture, and every culture has scars of of, of sin and um, uh, just dark events, of course, in their past. And and America is, uh, is of course in no way exempted from from that sort of thing. We have our our own scars and uh, and, and our own blights, I suppose, from the past of history. Um, how how do those cultural scars continue to inform or shape the uh, the way that, that the Viennese live and, and especially the way that they worship or don't worship even today. I think one thing we didn't include that probably has as much or more effect than anything is the enlightenment and humanism mm -hmm. and secularism. Um, because most Austrians that you speak with have um, no, they, they don't believe that they are sinners. Like if you confront them with sin, they're like, well, I'm, I'm fine. Every human being is innately good. And if I've done something wrong, it's because of my environment or because of someone mm. else influencing me or whatever. And so they don't even acknowledge that they have a need for the gospel. So you're, or that there's even God, at least not God in the way we understand God in a biblical sense. Um, but then they have all the Catholic traditions. So they're also skeptical of any, anything not Catholic. So you've got both sides of 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 that going on, um, and they're very into esoteric um, or like Buddhism or Eastern religion because it doesn't require a lot of them in the sense of accountability. It's just empty myself and let whatever happens happen. Kind of weird. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about um, where Vienna is now, so far down the road, and and with so much of that history behind them, uh, as we've talked about the culture there, uh, Lance, you have regularly uh, described Vienna as a post-Christian uh, mm -hmm. place, a post-Christian culture. Uh, can you define that that term, post-Christian? I feel like we're hearing it a lot more um, in, mm -hmm. in sort of church 
circles and, and, and as we think about missions and, uh, and, and ministering to different places, what is a post-Christian culture? How can I tell if I'm living in a post-Christian culture? Um, yeah, the, the post a Christian culture would be a culture that is strongly influenced by Christianity. And in, in using that in the broadest sense of the uh, uh, broadest term, right? Not not a specific uh, denomination of some sort. So, a Catholic, a country where the Catholic Church, like Austria, where the Catholic Church was was predominant, the predominant thing for centuries, is going to be called a, a, a Christian country. And and so there's the Judeo-Christian moral code. Uh, ethical code. There's kind of some expectations. There are traditions. The holidays are kind of defined by that. And so we have Christmas and Easter and so forth. And so those would all be signs of a Christian culture. When I lived in Iran, there was no Christmas uh, because it's a Muslim culture and, and mm -hmm. Easter because there was a Muslim, it was a Muslim culture. And so they had Muslim holidays. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in that sense, you could say a Christian culture is one where the, the presence of the Christian faith in whatever form it is, is large enough that it has, it plays a role in the culture and the society as a whole. Mm -hmm. And like in the Bible Belt, uh, you could say, well, you know, uh, the pastor of the First Baptist Church would be like a civic leader, purely because he's the pastor of the of the Baptist Church. And yeah. so there's some standing, if a person being associated with this group, or with the Christian church would, would have some standing in society because of that. Now, when I say post-Christian, then, like in Europe, where uh, the disillusionment came with the Catholic Church and the Enlightenment came, and so it has been, the, this kind of Christian foundation has been replaced by another way of thinking, another religion, uh, which we might call humanism or something like that. So it's no longer the predominant uh, voice in the culture, and that's what we mean by post-Christian is that that that's no longer the case and so you know to say i'm a pastor of a baptist church in austria has no meaning to say i have a a, a degree from a, a a bible seminary that is kind of like oh well yeah but you can earn money with that you know so so the credibility goes down and the voices of someone else or some other group uh primary voices and so that's what we would say in europe is post-christian but there's still a lot of visible things that look like Christianity. There's lots of stuff left over. You could say left over in the culture, uh, like holidays and traditions and so forth. Yeah. And so in that sense, you can see a little bit of Christian, but in the hearts and the minds of the people, that's legendary or mythical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what's real is something different now. Yeah, yeah. So it's not that, uh, not so much that when we think of post-Christian, that, that that means that all the old church buildings have been torn down or turned into taco restaurants or, uh, or and, and that we no longer celebrate Christmas or Easter, that those those vestiges, if you will, of Christianity are, are altogether wiped off of the map. It's just that those things are still there, but they don't have that, that shaping effect on the broad populace that maybe they once, that maybe they once did. I know you're spending time as you're here on stateside assignment in Amarillo. Would Amarillo be more on the end of Christian culture or post-Christian culture? And I know you spend a little bit of time uh, here in New Mexico, and, and you'll spend some more time uh, uh, here in the not too not too distant future. Um, where would you put some of the places you've seen in New Mexico on a scale like that? More toward the Christian or more toward the post-Christian? Yeah, that's a good one. I think Amarillo is a Bible Belt town, and there is a lot of visible Christian, a very strong, and the churches are strong evangelistic in this sense. And I would venture to say Amarillo is on the post-Christian side, uh, maybe not real far, but somewhat. Uh, and yet there's a, a, a difficulty to recognize that within the churches. There, you know, The idea is, but we're Christians, but we're in charge here, mm -hmm. kind, of, yeah. kind of feeling. Uh but that's kind of only within our bubble where that really means something. And as soon as you step outside that bubble, it's like, it's not like you're irrelevant or meaningless, which is the way it would be in Vienna. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh yeah, we, you know, you're the moral people in town mm -hmm. kind of thing. There's still a lot of them. Uh, 
I think that um, our very little experience uh, in Albuquerque and New Mexico as a whole is that been a little bit surprised how much visible Christianity there is. Mm-hmm. In my mind, placed way on the way on the post-Christian side of things, um, and yet there's a, a strong presence, a visible presence, which is encouraging, of course. Uh, yeah. Just a little bit surprising. Uh, we spend some time up in in New England, and out in the smaller towns, uh, there's a a small but vibrant Christian community that's hardly noticed by people. Hmm. Hmm. But there's churches everywhere because it was, you know, they were all built 200 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so that would be a definite post-Christian clear thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. When you get into Boston, you're way at the extreme end of, of post-Christian. There's, yeah. there's churches and all that stuff, but it's much more like Vienna, you know, where it feels like, you know, nine out of ten people don't even don't even notice those. Their, their life is uh, is is dominated by everything but faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. You know, here here in uh, uh, in the Albuquerque area, we have uh, out on the west side of town, we have the the Petroglyph National Monument, and and out in the Petroglyph National Monument, you have all of these uh, rock drawings from indigenous people that lived here hundreds of years ago. Uh, nobody lives out there anymore. Well, there's lots of suburbs and houses, and, you know, uh, I have a house not too far from the <clears throat> petroglyphs myself. But you can go hiking up there, and you can see these uh, hundreds of years old uh, rock drawings, uh, very artistic, some of them pretty ornate and detailed, uh, from indigenous peoples that lived there hundreds of years ago. But they're not there anymore, but but the the vestiges, uh, the, 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 art, the artifacts of... of their life there are still there. In some ways, it, it sounds like a, in a post-Christian culture, uh, church buildings and maybe even holidays, uh, Christian holidays, Christmas, Easter, that kind of thing. In a post-Christian culture, they're still there, but they're there more like artifacts of a day and a people gone by rather than they are you know, just torn down and totally disposed of. Um, there's still a presence there, but but not in a way that's, that's shaping the lives so much of, uh, of people that live in that culture. Is that a fair way of describing that yes and at the same time i mean i was your illustration is perfect i mean it's just like what we experience in europe and 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 at the same time you know you said it doesn't really impact our lives but it does because when you're in in new mexico right it's indigenous native american stuff it, it, it actually affects the pace of life the rhythm of life in a subtle way, it's not a conscious mm-hmm, thing, mm-hmm. but it's, it's still there. But but the things you actually notice are just like relics. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but like I've got a you know I always tell this story. I have a friend who doesn't believe in Jesus and he hates the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know when Lent comes around, he'll give up something because that's what you do. Oh, that's really it's like, don't you realize that that's the, from the church that yeah. you, you, you know? Yeah, but it's what we do in our culture. Right? Yeah, that's something else. Yeah. So that's the crazy thing about, I think, about post-Christian, at least from the perspective of a, of a believer, a follower of Christ, is, is to understand that uh, what is my role? How is that? How do we engage our culture? Do we mm-hmm. fight for relevance? Do we do we become, you know, aggressive for power, or do we recognize we don't have power? Our our battle with the culture is not to reconquer it or to change it. Our battle is to share grace. Yeah. yeah. To share the gospel with people. And 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 the changing of the culture comes later, comes after there's a mass of people yeah. who believe. Um, yeah. That is just so um um just I think insightful. Uh a, a lot of times I, I think presently um, the the church in America, Christians in America, are beginning to realize that Christianity is losing uh, its cultural influence, and and we see in some pockets some people fighting really hard to reassert Christianity in the political sphere. Um, but it it looks, you know, from an outside, from an objective perspective, it looks a lot more like 
people who are afraid of losing power trying to get power back rather than trying to influence the culture through the gospel. Um, let's put Christians back in charge is, is more the, uh, the thrust of that rather than let's let's proclaim the gospel and see more people become Christians and see their lives be changed. Let's, uh, and, and so I wonder, as you uh, and Carrie are ministering there in Vienna in a culture like this, uh, I imagine there are a number of different uh, obstacles, hurdles, difficulties to overcome in sharing the gospel to a culture where the gospel has kind of had its heyday and then gone, and where, where the church, the institution of the church, has had its heyday and then gone. What are some of the, the strongest obstacles to overcome? And, and then at the same time, what are some of the maybe new opportunities that you're observing uh, that, that the Lord is, is putting before you? Uh, what, what soft spots, if I can put it that way, in a post-Christian culture are there for gospel ministry? I think the the challenge there's two challenges I think that really really are critical, and uh, I was at a conference once uh, I think it was a, uh, where Tim Keller was speaking and he said in New York City they had to ask the question how do you share the gospel with someone who doesn't believe in sin, mm-hmm. and the issue for us is especially when we think about gospel uh, evangelism training we're 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 taking the entire Bible's message, mm-hmm. putting it into three or four statements yeah. These three or four statements are built on the assumption that there's a foundation of understanding about what those four statements mean. And and then the basic question there is, but what if that foundation doesn't exist? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, well, I'm a good person. I'm not bad. I'm not as bad. You know, so so this idea of and there's different ways of looking at the gospel. There is guilt and innocence, but there's also mm-hmm. shame and honor. And there's also fear and power, and there's there's other ways of looking at it. And so uh, one of the things that I think is that our gospel presentation things are all very from a very narrow one angle, mm. right? You think of the the gospel as a diamond with lots of lots of different facets and angles. You look at it from different directions, it's got a little bit different color, maybe. Mm-hmm. and And most of our tools are all from one one little edge. Mm-hmm. We need to learn all the other angles yeah. in in communicating the gospel, and even there, how do you share the gospel with a person who doesn't believe that God exists? Mm-hmm. And so, the challenge is that we have to go way, way back to the assumptions of the person that we're talking to, right? And start there, and that is, have you ever imagined that maybe God exists? Mm. It's a different kind of conversation. We're still yeah. trying to get to the same point, but we have to maybe go back and do a lot more pre-work. And I think of this, you know, with our children, the day they're born, they don't have that foundation, but we speak it into their lives. We right. speak it into their lives. A Christian culture then builds some stuff in too, but but that builds that foundation. And then when we talk about the gospel with them, they kind of understand what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But with a enlightened post-Christian humanism person in like in Europe or more and more in America, um, you can't, they don't have that background at all. You might as well be speaking French to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't way, yeah. understand anything you're talking about. And that's the issue then is when the first thing you say to him is you're really bad. Mm. Without any sort of context, mm-hmm. that's a little abrasive. Uh, but people are able to acknowledge and recognize I'm bad in the context of a larger conversation. So when you talk about the soft spot and the opportunity, mm-hmm. we think the soft spot is, and the the opportunity is, it really, if we will take an approach to interact with people that is that is relationship oriented. How are you doing? What's going on in your life? Mm-hmm. I want to know you. I, 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 I am just your friend kind of thing, even if we're not friends, but, but some sort of care about them that this opens the door then to philosophize with one another about life. And that's where we can say, well, I'm guided by an understanding Jesus mm-hmm. foundation and so forth. 
and it takes a while then to to work our way up to the what we would call the gospel presentation yeah yeah you mentioned there lands the importance of uh developing relationships with uh with people that you're going to be uh seeking to share the gospel <coughs> with um how, how long does that take uh Let's say from just meeting someone uh, in a coffee shop or, um, um, or or just out in the community, how long does that take to be able to to in your experience to gain that level of trust and understanding of the other person, uh, seeking to understand them? You know, uh, I've often heard it said in communication, we always want to seek to understand before we seek to be understood, uh, and 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 that helps to demonstrate mm -hmm. in some way. Uh, our investment in the other person. So how long does it, how long does it take to, and I know every person's different, but how long does it take to, to get to that level of relationship where you can finally say to that individual, Hey, you know, um, I, my life is, my life is guided by a different set of principles than yours. I'd love to share those with you. Cause I think they could be helpful to you. I think that, that they could um, really make a change in your life. Surprisingly, I would say Europeans um actually have more conversation they're more conversation oriented than activity oriented i feel like in america it actually takes longer to get to a deeper level with people than it does your if i ask a european sincerely what's going on in their life i want to know you mm -hmm. you might get more than you bargained for <laughs> oh, wow. they might just dump everything yeah. <laughs> um because they love to talk and mm. philosophize and analyze what what's the meaning of life and um they're into all of that and i would also say a quicker way to a relationship with a with an austrian in particular is to be a part of a group where there's a common interest or mm. hobby they mm. love their hobbies they invest a lot of time and money into their hobbies and as long as you're in that group then once you're in that group you're in and mm. you can talk to anybody in that group on a different kind of relational level than you would someone on the street. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing we've found, if we want to get to know lost people quickly and get to those conversations quickly, be a part of a group where there's a common interest. Like a, we call them third places where uh -huh, uh -huh. people kind of develop community around their hobby. Um, but but surprisingly, they're, I would say maybe not the first conversation, but pretty quickly, they'll start telling you every personal thing that you don't want to know. Uh, that's, that's amazing. That's, it's so different from, uh, Carrie, what you're describing is so different from how I experience life, uh, on a regular basis. Maybe some of that is cause I'm, I, I tend to be an introvert. And so if somebody asks me how I'm really doing, I'm usually probably not going to tell them if I don't know them. Um, uh, but I think it goes the other way too. You know, I notice very much in the culture that we're in, you run into somebody uh, at the hardware store or the auto parts store, or even at the coffee shop and ask them how they're doing, how their day is going. And it's always the same. Oh, it's good. I'm fine. Doing good. You know, and, and we have this, uh, we, we have this thing in our, our, our culture here, at least um, in the United States and in some places more severe than others, where we like to keep people at arm's distance and maybe even just a touch further if we can. And, and it takes a, a quite a while to get past that. I've noticed even, even among uh, church people and, and not specifically the members of our church, but in other churches, that's still, that's a, a cultural thing that's even here among Christians is we tend to keep people, um, a, a little further away than, um, or to keep them at a more comfortable distance, I suppose, uh, so that we don't have to share uh, all of those, all the nitty gritty kind of details. And so mm -hmm. that's just, that's m maybe not mind blowing, but it is pretty surprising to me that you, that, that in Vienna, you can ask someone, how's your day going? And they'll actually give you an honest answer. It'll usually be negative and whiny, but yes, you will get an answer. <laughs> Well, the, and the thing is, there that she's she's referencing someone you know, right? So it's mm -hmm. not, sure. not, not just, just met, running into just, someone. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We come back to your your original question, which have kind of had two parts: mm -hmm. gaining trust and sharing about the gospel. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we, I mean, we've we've got the experience, made the experience 
it doesn't really take all that long to gain trust. It does, there's a little bit of time involved in it. You know, not like we met each other yesterday and now we're talking about deep stuff. We can talk about the gospel right away. Mm. If we're acting like trustworthy people, mm-hmm. the relationship will continue. Yeah. If we're not, if we're acting like you're a project or, mm. you know, I'm I'm trying to corner you with pressure, then we won't see him ever again. Right. So, but that's not really any different than here. Um, but it doesn't really take all that long to develop rapport with people, mm-hmm. which is a, a basic trust. And, and within that we can make clear, I am a Jesus person. Mm-hmm. It's really important and helpful to do that as early as possible. Yeah. But getting to that deep, what you said, I've got something for your life that I think you should try Jesus. That's the part that takes longer mm-hmm. in the sense because that's like giving advice or telling me what to do or whatever. Mm-hmm. That would take a long time to get to that point. But all along the way to that point, to be unpacking why I am the way I am mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and why maybe in many cases it would be why I'm not so discouraged by every little thing or yeah. why I have hope or uh, why I have joy in, in the middle of sorrow, uh, all these types of things. Well, that's going to happen in, in a relationship. And very, very few Austrians come to faith in a short amount of time. Sure. Generally, they need a long experience watching the transformational power of the gospel in the life of other people. Mm-hmm. And then they will kind of slowly realize there's something to this mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. want it. That's so in one sense, it doesn't take long at all, but at the same time, you have to be prepared that it's going to take a long time. Yeah. And yeah. You know, Carrie, one of Carrie's best friends, uh, she's known her what, 20, 23, 24 years now, you know, and Carrie was talking to her about Jesus. And she said, well, if I don't follow him, will you still be my friend? That was mm-hmm. 18 years ago or something, 19 years ago. Wow. Uh, and, but Carrie shares the gospel with her all the time, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the time throughout this time. And, uh, and she's tried all different kinds of stuff in her life and none of it works, but she won't try Jesus. Yeah. Right? yeah. So that's kind of the conversation they're in. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that question, Carrie, that your friend posed to you, even if I don't trust Jesus, will you still be my friend? Man, I, I just it just makes me wonder do do so many people who don't know Christ do they look at Christians as as people who are just trying to convert them to our side and then we don't want anything to do with them uh, Lance you used the word uh, or used the phrase not looking at people like a project looking at them like people um, that just kind of breaks my heart to think that there are folks in the world who might look at Christians as um, uh, 21st century sort of crusaders. We're, we've got a job, and we're going to convert you, and then we're moving on. We, we could care less about who you are as a person. Uh, we just want to make sure you're on our team. Uh, and and that is uh, – uh, and, of course, we, we want people to know Christ. We want people to to have that, that transformation of heart and soul – uh, to be born again, to know the God who created them, to know <clears throat> the joy of having sins forgiven. all of, We want all of that for people. Um, we, but we also, uh, I would hope, uh, want them to know of our love for them. I mean, Jesus says in John 13, uh, by this all men will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And if our love for a lost person stops when they become Christian, or if they don't become Christian, either either way, um, but that, that, de- that may demonstrate something, um, not particularly Christian about us. If our love for others has, has limits. Um, yeah. I, well, that's, that's one of the barriers of the, the, maybe you could call the, the preconceived ideas that we, that you deal with sure. that's true here in America, true mm-hmm. too. Uh, the church as an institution or uh, someone got burned or you've heard stories or whatever. People have that preconceived idea about like about us in Austria, we're missionaries, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why did mm-hmm. you come to Austria? Well, to tell you about Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, 
okay, well, that puts some defenses up. Yeah. Uh, or it calls up those prejudices a little bit. And so there is a sense in which we need to demonstrate, well, maybe what you've heard about the church or maybe even what you've experienced of the church uh, was not accurate or maybe not the way God intended. Mm. Uh, and so we're, we're trying to demonstrate grace and friendship and tr- yeah. uh, Troya, uh, faithfulness, faithfulness yeah. in relationship. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Um, what are some things that you're particularly encouraged about in terms of the gospel's uh, movement and work among the VNEs. Uh, what are you excited to get back to when you finish your stateside assignment? What are you excited to get back to and get back to work on because you, you see the Lord working there and, and you're just really excited to jump back into it? Well, one of our, one of our, one of my, my probably my biggest burden mm-hmm. is that uh, so, so few leaders within the churches in Austria are actually Austrian people. Um, and, and, and what we've been encouraged by recently, just before we left Austria to come to America, uh, was a couple of young families taking some initiative and, uh, some church plants that, that were just launched, uh, last year mm. that had in their core leadership teams were made up mostly of, or completely of Austrians. And that's very, very exciting, uh, for us. And uh, I think part of the issue we have in Austria is that the Christian faith is a foreigner thing. Mm. And what's exciting is to see local local people who are who have a relationship with Jesus, who are living it and experiencing it in an Austrian way, who are now wanting to, you know, be stewards of the, the Great Commission in their own country mm-hmm. and 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 reach their own people yeah and i think there's great power in that because that means the church will become more and more austrian in its styles and forms and feelings Mm -hmm. also it's easier to connect to for people because they're not crossing so many cultural hurdles trying to figure it out Mm -hmm. Uh, and i i say that's that for me is um a great burden that there, I mean, we've basically said we're commit the rest of our life in Austria to the next generation of Austrian leaders, that, that it would be Austrians, not out, uh, foreigners. Right. Uh, yeah. And we're seeing some steps in that direction. And that's very, very exciting. That is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I um, share a lot of the same kind of excitement. Anytime I see uh, uh, a young man or woman that's wanting to grow in their ability to uh, to help lead in the church, whether that's formally, you know, a young man serving as a pastor or a young woman wanting to go on the mission field or serve children or disciple other women in the church. A- anytime you see that sort of uh, excitement, that kind of joy about it, it it's uh, it's invigorating and it gets you excited about going back. Carrie, what about you? What are you particularly excited about getting back to doing and, and, uh, and seeing God at work? Yeah, I would say the Lord uses me in the most powerful ways uh, by equipping and mentoring uh, young moms. Mm. The culture is very anti, uh, I don't know, biblical, My, you know, our understanding of biblical womanhood and biblical being a mom, being a, wi- a, a wife and mm. um, supporting my husband and, you know, well, all the things we we understand the Bible to say about what it looks like, um, that is the culture is not only not that, but actively fighting against that, mm. um, even within the church. Mm. So I really enjoy encouraging mo- m- women who have chosen to uh, live in that biblical way and to um yeah, they they they're they're they feel attacked constantly, basically. Mm, mm. Um, so just discipleship, mentoring, yeah. encouraging, uh, and that's where I I get the most excited. So. Mm. That's right. Yeah, that's awesome. That's good. That's good. Um, as we kind of begin to to wrap up our conversation here today, and and I know we could talk a whole lot longer, and I would love to, but uh, but we all have things we need to do, and our, our listeners won't listen forever either. They'll eventually tune us out. So, but as we kind of wrap up, uh, Carrie and Lance, if if somebody 
here in Albuquerque, or even at our church at First Baptist West Albuquerque, was thinking about whether God was calling them to be an evangelist, church planter, missionary to another country, something like that. What are some of the things that you would encourage them to consider uh, to, to clarify that calling? Um, you know, often that, that question, is God calling me? What is God calling me to? Uh, comes up in the minds of believers at, at lots of stages of life. It doesn't just have to be, you know, a young person. It, it could be a, a recent empty nester or, or a new retiree that is now experiencing this <clears throat> call of God uh, to, to go and, and spend their, their remaining years in, in service and ministry uh, to the Lord. If somebody's thinking through that call, how would you uh, encourage how would you counsel them to pursue clarification of that what's god calling me to and and let's say somebody uh ha- ha- knew that god was calling them to serve the lord overseas how might they join you or join other people uh in, in that calling on the field well that's a can of worms but uh, you know the first things coming to mind are practice what you know do mm. Mm. What do you think God's called you to do? So if it's evangelist, get out and evangelize. Um, and so take advantage of opportunities to get involved. And if you're thinking, I don't know what God called me to do, I want to, then I would say explore, go on mission trips, go, yeah, go you know, work with uh, disaster relief. Mm-hmm. Just be active in all kinds of opportunities. Now, if it's missions, foreign missions, international, mm-hmm. then like through the IMB, we have lots of different avenues. We call them pathways. Mm-hmm can gain experience there's uh volunteer teams of course uh volunteer projects but then there are things there's things from four months to two years to three years to career and so each one of those the the different levels the different lengths of time give different experiences yeah yeah also require a different amount of preparation right so Mm -hmm. you don't have a seminary degree to go for two years as a as a missionary uh funded by the imb right Mm -hmm to explore and to dip your foot in and, and get experience. I would say that's all in a sense, uh, institutionally or structurally, there's all kinds of opportunities. What I think would be really important is more on the mental side, the personal side, mm. which is, uh, to say, get outside your comfort zone, mm. go somewhere. Like if yeah. you know, get out of your own neighborhood, don't hang around just with your church friends. Get involved in some sort of group or sport or something. Mm. People who have nothing to do with with all your church friends, uh-huh. and be salt and light in the dark world mm. around you. And and you know and 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 then of course that would lead then to get involved in ministries in the city, get involved in ministries in the state, yeah. volunteer teams and so forth. But keep pushing yourself to get out to get experiences. And uh, then, of course, to be reflecting on those things. Mm-hmm. And Carrie and I can't emphasize enough. We see this all the time. Um, we, we must be people of the word. Mm. God speaks through his word. That's his His revealed truth to us. And so you got to be reading lots and lots and lots of the gospel, lots yeah. of the gospel. Uh, and let that be working in your heart all the time mm-hmm. as, as all this stuff is going on. And I think then uh, uh, someone who, you know, to have a, a pastor, mentor, friend, maybe maybe family member, someone who is totally for you mm-hmm. yeah, and, and maybe objective enough, right, if God's mm-hmm. calling you like move away. That's going to make that relationship harder. Yeah. Bless it anyway to, 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 to be willing to release you. Cause you don't really want someone who's going to, you know, hold the strings. Yeah. Yeah. Say, well, you could be a missionary, but why not just stay here? Mm, sure. That's a good, that might be a coaching question. Uh-huh. Needs to come from someone who's objective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if the answer is God saying go, that then the response isn't, well, let's try that question again. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's funny. I you know I um most of the pastors I know anyway, myself included, uh, we have so much joy when 
when church members come to us and say, I think God's working in my life in this way. Mm-hmm. I think God's calling, maybe calling me to this place. I don't know what's going on, but, but, but I feel like the Lord is leading me in this or that direction. It may not even be in ministry. It, it might just be in life, this job over that job. But they're, but they're thinking about whatever it is, wherever it is that the Lord is leading them. They're thinking about it in terms of how, how do I, how do I, one, be obedient to what God's calling me to do, but then number two, uh, h- how do I glorify God in whatever it is that I'm going to do, whether it's mission work or just changing jobs or pursuing this or that degree or whatever? I don't know a pastor who, who uh, or haven't met the pastor anyway, who would look at that person and say, nah, I don't think so, you know, or, or would be disappointed that the Lord would be calling them. Um, uh, I, I pray for the day that the, and we regularly pray uh, in our church for the work of the mission, uh, the work of the gospel around the world for missionaries around the world. And I regularly pray that God would be calling people out from among us, from among our congregation and send us, take us to, to far flung places of the world that uh, haven't heard the gospel and, and need to hear it. Uh, Carrie and Lance, it's been a, uh, just a wonderful uh, uh, time to spend with you this morning. Um, I know you've, you've commit, you've got other commitments and, and I want to help you honor those today uh, in your schedule. And we're really looking forward to uh, spending time with you here on our Mission Engagement Sunday, uh, uh, not too far around the corner here. Uh, by the time some people listen to it, we'll have already had it and it will have been wonderful, I trust. And, um, but looking, so looking forward to seeing you guys in person again and having you with us that day. Uh, is there anything you'd care to share uh, with our listeners before, uh, before we go today? Well, we're very thankful and excited about your partnership with us. Mm-hmm. And we're looking forward to that day as well. Yeah. Uh, and um, so we, and we just want to thank you for letting us be a part of it. And thank you for doing this with us and for uh, letting us be a part of your journey. And uh, we just ask and pray that the Lord will bless the things we would say uh, to be impactful for you and your people. Well, I appreciate that so much, and uh, and I too am looking forward to uh, uh, our church and you all continuing to prayerfully work together as the Lord allows, and uh, um, and and I just pray the Lord's blessing on you all, especially as uh, as you rest here, sort of on your stateside assignment. You, you're, I know you're looking forward to going back to Vienna to rest from all of your resting uh, on uh, while you've been here, uh, but it's been such a joy to talk with you today. And, uh, and, and we look forward to, to much more of that in the future. We do too. Yep. Wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful. This has been an episode of Mission Chats with First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque. For more information on our church, you can visit us at www.fbcwa.org. 